Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, NobleKnight.com, where Out of Print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. Today, we're talking about religion and campaign themes in D&D. We also have some breaking news we're going to discuss. But first, let's meet the panelists. With me today at the round table are Vegas Lancaster. Yo, yo. Andrew Timez. Hey, yo. Rudy Basso. Greetings, gamers. <laughs> Alex Basso. Hey, everyone. <laughs> and today's get to know you question for our panel is what is your favorite PC race in D&D? Alex Basso, your favorite PC race. All right, so this answer is going to expose how boring I am. Uh, my favorite PC race at the moment is the next humans, and I love them because they get insane stat bonuses, plus one to every attribute, uh, and that's great. I mean, it's, I haven't seen it like that much before, and it also goes with the fact that I kind of don't like playing weird monsters <laughs> or weird alien creatures. And I like pretending I'm, you know, it's me in there sometimes. (laughs) I can do that with humans. Uh, Absolutely very relatable. And in a game that attributes are the base for everything, it helps to get plus one to all of them. Rudy Basso, your favorite PC race. I'm going to be slightly less boring than my brother and say that my favorite race is the half-elf, which is half-human, half-elf. (laughs) Um, I like them because they're kind of unique. They're born into two worlds. So they're, they kind of have to do their own thing, but at the same time they relate to humans, they relate to elves. There's a lot of great role-playing possibilities there. Plus they're usually written as a very outgoing and friendly people and they're always popular. And I like to believe I'm a very popular person in real life. (laughs) So it just goes hand in hand. You too can put yourself in the shoes of, of your favorite PC race, like Alex. Yes. Andrew Timez, what is your favorite PC race? Uh, I'm kind of uh, biased towards the 4th edition Pixie. I played it in a one-shot a while ago, and it was a lot of fun to, you know, play the kind of trickster mentality, but also abuse the flying rules really badly against a lot of the standard, you know, sword and board first level enemies. There was just a lot of things that happened in that particular one shot. So that in terms of bang for your buck, in terms of memories, ratio of memories to time played, I think Pixie is probably my favorite. (laughs) That is a bold and brave choice. Direct your hate mail to the Tome Show's website where you can leave (laughs) us a comment. And tell us how you feel about Andrew's choice of the fourth edition Pixie. I actually think it's pretty cool. They could fly. It was fun. Vegas Lancaster. Uh, I'm going to go with a somewhat controversial race and say the drow, uh, the dark elves. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people think they shouldn't be a player race at all and that they should be uh, just evil monsters and that we're all a bunch of drist bandwagon jumpers, us <laughs> drow fans. Uh, but I love them. Uh, I think their society is really cool. All my characters have sad, terrible backstories, and a drow character has that built right in. (laughs) (laughs) 
Absolutely. And speaking of sad, terrible backstories, my favorite PC race is the Warforged. Uh, slave soldier robots. You don't get cooler than that. Everybody loves robots in D&D. <laughs> Ugh, get your robots out of my dungeons and dragons. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for being on the show today. Breaking news today, The Escapist announced uh, that there has been a leak on barnesandnoble.com of some uh, D&D 5th edition products. It looks like release dates and prices have been released. So not too much information other than that. But it looks like there's going to be a D&D starter kit that's probably going to have some bare bones rules, maybe some pre-gen characters, that kind of thing. They've done that before. They did it for 4th edition, probably an adventure that you can play through. That retails for about 20 bucks. Uh, looks like Barnes & Noble already has the price slashed if you pre-order. Similarly, they have the price slashed for an August 19th release of the Player's Handbook. Um, these have not been confirmed by Wizards, and it should be noted the price of the Player's Handbook is $49.95. Again, Barnes & Noble has that slashed. And I think we'll probably see PDF releases as well along with these things. However... The high price tag of the Player's Handbook, certainly the most expensive Player's Handbook we've seen in our lifetimes, is a little disconcerting for the mom-and-pop stores who probably can't give the discounts places like Barnes & Noble and Amazon can. Uh, so I just wanted to go around real quick, get your thoughts and opinions about that. It's coming this summer. We've known it has. It's unconfirmed again, so we're not sure if this is absolutely true. By the time this podcast comes out, we may have a lot more information. But uh, let's just discuss Vegas Lancaster. What are your thoughts? Uh, I uh, I think with a $50 player's handbook, what Maybe, maybe what we'll see is that, like you said, they'll have PDFs available and the actual core books will have tons of cool art and stuff like that that make you want to uh, own a physical book as more of a novelty. Uh, and that'll be the uh, the distinction between whether you want to take PDFs online or uh, buy expensive books. I would be super upset if the PDF was not the book, just as PDF form, if they had something exclusive in the hardcover, I would not be particularly happy. So I hope you're wrong, Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that super high price is a way to discourage people from getting the books and instead go off the route of PDFs, assuming it's slightly cheaper. But I mean, uh, did they say anything about uh, Dungeon Master or Monster's Manual? Just, just got info on player? Just got info on the player's handbook. It's not sure. We'll see. In the past, they've released them all at once, and sometimes they've done, like, player's handbook one month, then the DMG the next, then, you know, so they spread out their releases. So we'll see. I think it behooves them probably to release all three at once because then you can start playing the game yeah. immediately. <laughs> it could be that they're combining them. I mean, yeah, I have pros point. Yeah, absolutely. It could be, could be. That's a good point. Could be like the Pathfinder or Star Wars core rulebook. You know, it's got everything you need in one book. That's super hefty. Uh, Andrew Timez, what do you think? In terms of the accuracy of the statement, I think the only thing that's really in question is the price point because I feel like the details that were released were too specific to not have some element of truth to them. If Wizards offers some sort of PDF deal for a discount, does is that going to hurt them long-term in the sense that going to these mom-and-pop stores used to be a place for 
people with these similar kind of very niche interests to get together and meet, you know, and you would get to talk to people with your same interests who you might not see if you were, you know, also browsing in a, a larger store like Barnes and Noble or ordering online. So I'm wondering if that's going to hurt them long term if offering the PDFs and the direct to consumers kind of defeats the networking and social aspect, which I think is very important to D&D as a whole. I mean, I, I, I play it more for the, the friendship that, I, you know, roll with an E as opposed to two L's. Yeah, absolutely. I ran uh, a couple seasons of Encounters uh, a few years back when I lived closer to a local game store than I do now. And you did get a lot of walk-ins, people who had never played D&D before who wanted to try it. And it was a great place. You know, you want to support game stores because they are a great way to drum up business too. People will come in, they'll feel comfortable playing the game with a bunch of people who can teach them how, and then they can go off and teach their friends and buy more stuff. Um, so I'm a little concerned about that as well. Yeah, guys, totally. Support your local game shops. That is, uh, that's where I like to buy uh, any game stuff that I buy uh, from. Uh, that said, if you guys were curious about the um, difference in price between this uh, alleged player's handbook and the last one, uh, in 2008, the 4th Ed Player's Handbook was released for $35, uh, and at $50, uh, that's well over the raise of inflation since then, uh, a $35 book in 2014 would cost $38 uh, with inflation. you got to remember in PHB 1 for 4th Ed, there weren't as many classes either, right? Well, what we have now, with the addition of a possible sorcerer, that puts it at nine, I think. Nine classes? Sure, and we may see a warlock as well, it sounds like. So there, there could be a lot of a lot more classes. But the 4th edition player's handbook, every class had a unique power set that was printed along with it. And certainly the spells here will also get a similar treatment. So it'll be interesting to see, for sure, what exactly is offered within these books. Timis? Yeah, and the... One thing that kind of bothers me about it a little bit is that when 4th edition came out, all of the power sets were completely new. All of the, you know, the the base idea of the game, the Roll20 aspect of it was still there, but they kind of revolutionized the way that classes were distinguished from each other. I feel like we're paying a lot of money for Next at $50 to get <laughs> the same old spells. Right. Which I'm not, you know, I didn't play through 3rd edition or 2nd edition or anything like that, so maybe that's just me being the really selfish 4th ed newbie, but that that was kind of my feeling on seeing that. I was like, wow, that's a lot of money for what is essentially a system tweak. Sure, and you're not wrong in the sense that iconic, right, has been the big buzzword around this next edition. So they are, some things are new, like their advantage-disadvantage system is some new mechanics and things like that, but there's also a lot of ideas that are just spins on things we've seen before. Um, spells, I think you'll see a lot of similarities between your third and second edition spells and the spells and next. You see a lot of 
mechanics that are, are sort of hodgepodge from other places, definitely honed. It's not just a patchwork of stuff. Um, you know, they're doing nicely making sure it all works together, but it, it is still, you're right. It is a lot of money for something that is not completely original and new. So James Wyatt's wandering monsters articles are no longer just about monsters. Um, he's talking about a lot of different stuff, and he has an article about uh, gods and demigods that came out recently, and uh, religion and things like that. So I just wanted to ask you guys, how do you like your religion in D&D Next? How do you like your gods? Do you like one pantheon of many gods that sort of everybody in the world recognizes? Do you like a lot of different pantheons? Do you like the idea of one god doing everything? Do you like no gods like in Dark Sun? Uh, and how do you like your gods? Do you like your gods to be intervention or non-intervention related? And if you have an example from an edition or from uh, a real world mythology or, or some other fiction mythology, uh, bring it up. Uh, let me know what you guys are thinking. I just want to go around the table and get the idea. What do people like? For me, I am a very big fan of a lot of different religions sort of reflective of our real world. Some polytheistic, maybe a monotheistic, you know, some dualistic religions, um, splintering off sects and cults like that. Uh, you know, and I, and I do like, other than granting divine characters powers and spells, I think it's pretty cool when the gods remain hands off for the most part. I do like a good campaign where you're going in and you're going to, you know fight Lolf too. I think that that can also be interesting and intriguing, but it is kind of cool when those beings are further away and more mysterious. That's sort of what I prefer. But what do you prefer, Andrew Timmes? Um, I like my gods to have a little bit of uncertainty. Uh, a lot of, one of the aspects of real world religion that I feel doesn't get enough play in a lot of fantasy tropes is the aspect of faith that you don't necessarily know, you don't, you can't prove to someone that, oh, you know, wealth does exist, or so on and so forth. Right. Uh, that, uh, I feel like having a non-interventionist pantheon in that way, I think adds to the mystery of the world, and also gives more agency to the players, in the sense that, oh, if we're PCs in a campaign, and we're working towards a goal, if you have interventionist gods, they can just swoop in and change everything you've done. And from levels 1 to 20 and beyond, or like 1 to 25, basically, you have no say in it because you can't really fight them. So the sense of the kind of non-interventionist, everyone has a goal, but they're kind of working at it from behind the shadows, and you have to earn your way into their sphere of attention... Uh, is what I think is most rewarding for the players. Absolutely, and it also gives you this sense of different people can interpret the word of that god differently. You know, so you can have a whole gamut of people, uh, just like in the real world, some people um, use what they believe to be the word of a deity to their gain, and other people use it to help others, and other people follow it to the letter, and other people think of it more as a metaphor. And I think you get a lot of interesting mix in there as well. 
Vegas, what are your thoughts? Oh, I think uh, I, I think religion in for as as much as we've played with gods in D and D, I think there's a lot we still haven't really explored. Um, you, you know, it's the the psychology of religion in real life versus the psychology of religion in the fantasy world where people are literally getting superpowers from worshiping gods uh, must be completely different. <laughs> you know, yeah. if I could shoot lasers out of my eyes, I'd be going to church every Sunday. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I honestly, uh, I, I don't think we've really explored it too much. Maybe some writers or DMS have, but the, the difference that makes, I'm really curious what that actually might be like. Yeah, that is an incredible point that it's not necessarily always reflective of real world because people are seeing the effects of these deities in one way or another through the granting of powers and spells. And you're right, how many people would there be who would just constantly pray night and day until they received their superpowers, you know? Um, why are there peasants still in a world <laughs> where if you pray enough, you receive the powers of your God? Uh, I think that's an interesting point that I have never really thought about, but that is excellent. Rudy Basso, what do you think? How do you like your gods? I respect your choice of lots of different gods and religions, James, but I unfortunately feel that that can be really overwhelming. There's a lot going on with alone your character. And to also try and have that knowledge of what's going on in the world in terms of who worships who and what powers they have is just a little much. And then that falls on the DM because then players are constantly asking, um, what, what guy is this again? Or what does this one do? <laughs> I like, uh, the, you know, the comparison I'm going to make is just the Greek pantheon where there's a handful of them. This one's clearly about war. This one's about love. This one's about friendship or whatever. And everyone <laughs> knows these gods. So it's less for the players to have to learn. And it's an easy transition to make. In fact, one game we played with the Greek gods. And I thought it was great because I knew everything. Oh, this guy's a priest of Hermes. Oh, neat. He must run fast or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, one that everyone knows, one pantheon that everyone knows, as opposed to too many. Well, and there's something to be said for that, right? If everybody, a lot of people do know the stories of your major Greek gods, jumping right in and saying, okay, you're a priest of Zeus, and so therefore you know you've got the Thunder Domain, it really does make things a lot easier if you are a new player, or even if you're a player in a new setting and you're just trying to learn everything. And, you know, there's some places I feel like the the old Greyhawk gods uh, are kind of like that. Uh, they're supposed to be one group of gods that everybody knows. And some priests are devoted to one. Some priests are sort of devoted to the whole pantheon. But then there's also Forgotten Realms, which has, like, so many deities that even, even the drizzs of the world aren't supposed to be able to keep them all straight because there's way too many of them. Yeah, way too many gods in Forgotten Realms. <laughs> Alex Basso, how do you like your gods? Uh, I like there being one sort of dominant pantheon of gods, as I said, a majority. 
of uh, the population worships, but I do still like having the other, you know, other religions around, but more of a role of where they're, they're kind of lost and the common people don't really know about them. So when you do encounter some sort of cult or followers of them, there is that kind of mysterious edge to it. You know, I like not knowing what this, what this person's doing or some sort of evil ritual and being confused by it. Uh, so that's something I, I do enjoy. And I like my gods to, to intervene every now and then. I think one of my, my favorite moments from uh, playing D&D was when Cord showed up and set up a, uh, a <laughs> tournament between yeah. our player characters. To, I love that too. To show who is the greatest and earned his most favor. And also one of my most disappointing moments as a player as well when I failed to win that tournament. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were the favorite. And I mean, just killing a god, I mean, that's great. I like characters who were meant to keep in check, you know, these guys. And... <laughs> Remind me again, Vegas, who did win that tournament of champions? Ah, uh, that was me. <laughs> I thought uh, I, I thought I got cut off early or something. No, no, it was me. <laughs> and uh, and uh, what what PC race were you playing? I uh, was a drow. And yeah. Alex, what uh, what PC race were you playing? I already forgot about the whole thing. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. I think it was human. It was human. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't next human though. If I had the additional stat bonuses, <laughs> it would have been done. <laughs> I uh, a lot of people thought rogues were a somewhat weak class in fourth edition, uh, but they're particularly good at killing other PCs. Yeah, I never understood the entire argument that fourth ed was never balanced for PvP combat. There is a there are a lot of weird things you can do with it, but I never kind of I, I never really saw where that argument was coming from because that tournament in particular that the four of us and the two other guys in that campaign had that was a lot of fun. It was, but I think when you think about, like, our warlord got slaughtered very quickly because he's meant as, you know, he was meant more to boost up people and heal them. And so as opposed to the striker characters like the rogue who are meant to deal lots of damage in one hit and fourth edition is so designed that PCs have less HP than monsters. So one big hit from a striker could really put you out, whereas a wizard... Right is killing lots of minions and and doing damage to people at once, but when he's just focusing on one guy, it's a little bit more difficult if you haven't built your wizard specifically to take out one guy at a time. Let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor, NobleKnight.com. Hello, hello, citizens. Oh, thank goodness, adventurers! We need a noble knight. Perhaps you can slay the beast of retail and reap the promises of riches. Riches? Yes! Great prices, out-of-print games, the latest releases, and a magic box that converts all of your old loot into cash or new loot. But why? Fantastic! I'll do it! Yes, well... You see, the beast, he kidnapped the mayor and can only be slain by the most noble of knights. Yes, yes, yes. I said I'll do it. Yes, the thing is, I was talking to her. What? Fear not, kind citizen. The noble knight will save the day, rescue the lord in distress, and liberate all that loot in a way only possible at Noble Knight. If you'd like to get your hands on Noble Knight's loot, head over to thetomeshow.com and click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Ha, I got to do something to help out. And we're back. My next topic, which is campaign themes. And campaign themes, James Wyatt sort of describes a couple of different uh, categories of them. But essentially, 
campaign themes are the ideas, the story themes that run throughout your entire campaign. So I want to talk to you guys about what are some of your favorite themes for a campaign to play and what do you as players like to do? How do you like it? And how do you like your party dynamics? Because I think that determines a lot of the theme as well. It's not all determined by the DM. The party's actions, the way they interact with each other and the world around them also determine the themes of the campaign. Um, you know, what is what is the, the arc of the campaign that you like? How do you like your players to be at the end? And how do you like them to interact during that. I know we have two uh, nice perspectives here. Uh, one with Rudy, sort of, on, on party dynamics, and Timez, I think you sort of have a different end of the spectrum on party dynamics, and I think that's really cool. So, uh, Rudy, why don't we start with you? What themes do you like, and how do you like your party dynamics? As far as settings go, I love the idea of adventures just trying to get by, man. There's a lot of world out there, and we're just trying to make our money and survive. Uh, the big save the world kind of stuff is interesting to some extent, but I, I like the smaller scale things, that you're a part of a big world, and things are going around around you, but you might not necessarily be the main character in these, in these big stories. Um, as far as party dynamic, this is something I think we've all talked about a lot. Um, I'm all about the party. All for one, one for all. Everyone works together and we're all friends, which is why I love the fate system, which has every member of the party establish some event with every other character. So you guys have that, that background that, with each other, and it's less likely that someone might do the opposite of what you want to want what you want to do that you can kind of discuss it out a little bit more because you have a relationship already. And Tim is, how do you like your campaign themes and how do you like your party interactions? Um, I am very focused on kind of the storytelling and improvisation side, I guess. And that, that is what is enjoyable to me. So the most interesting points of the campaigns that I can remember have been when two very different but very equally defensive values of two party members come into conflict and the rest of the action kind of hinges upon deciding, well, which value are we going to uphold? Uh, you know, the even in the decision of, you know, we realize that a you know a source of evil is sending evil in the direction of a town that we just left. Do we go to try to defend the town, or do we go to you know stop the evil at its source? The, or decisions like that, I think, are what make the game interesting for me. The smaller scale stuff in terms of you know dungeon crawling and whatnot. While I think there is a place for it, because I you know. I do like the tactical stuff. This, the nitty-gritty survival aspect of uh, you know counting out rations and all that stuff, that kind of survival simulation doesn't really appeal to me as much. So I like when all of those rules kind of make way for the players to write their own stories, even if those stories conflict with each other a little bit. Because that, I think, is what... Th those are my favorite memories of the game's are, is interacting with the other players as opposed to 
you know, watching, watching a role come up. I hear you. I hear you. Nice decision points and everything. And I hear you too, Rudy. I, I, I understand what you're saying. We've played a lot of times with very big world-shaking events, especially because as you get more powerful in 4th edition, which is what we've been mostly playing, it doesn't make sense that you would continue being a mercenary almost because your power is so great. Um, but I, that is an interesting point. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where you guys take this next campaign because... I do think we are going to build it perhaps a little more freeform with a lot of decision points and things. So we'll see. It'll be interesting. Uh, Vegas, what are your thoughts? How do you like your themes? How do you like your party dynamics? <laughs> we've been uh, we've played a lot of games with a lot of backstabbing and uh, inter-party betrayal. And uh, uh, that can be frustrating, but man, it's also really fun. Um <laughs> I uh my last character in our our probably our last ever fourth ed game uh Silas he was uh uh secretly a villain almost the entire time and uh is passing James little notes where I was doing evil things while people were sleeping and uh uh when that comes to light that makes for an interesting conversation with your friends that is my nightmare. <laughs> that is my nightmare. <laughs> all along, I've been thwarting all the things you guys have been doing, and I've been agreeing with you, and you haven't known. Ugh, it's, but And again, Rudy, it's funny because you are a guy who, you like board games like Shadows Over Camelot and Battlestar Galactica that have a sure. person who is specifically undermining everything that's happening the whole time. Well, those are games that are over in an hour. A campaign's played out over weeks, months, possibly even years. And to find out a year and a half in that Vegas has secretly been a villain the entire time, which is, I'd walk away and have to collect myself. Well, be, getting uh, pizza with Vegas is the same after that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, Rudy, does that, does, did that moment kind of denigrate the fun that you had had up until that point in the campaign but like was was the rest of that any less fun up until that point because of up what until Vegas that did? point no but after that point how i feel is not going to be the same okay unless we kill vegas right there which I <laughs> really hey, he did. had a he had a change of heart <laughs> oh okay he did yes that is just true. like just like another character i know <laughs> mm. and that character would be uh, it's a little gnome warlock I played called uh, Fizzlebottom Cloister Nook, who took a shine to the eye and hand of Vecna. <laughs> and uh, it's surprising that Rudy has not quit the group entirely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, the, the fact that Rudy played with that same group of people for any length of time after that whole, you know, fiasco is, I guess, to his credit. Woo! Well, and I think, honestly, from a DM perspective, it is great to see inter-party conflict sometimes, especially when you can push along the story. But then there are other times where you are you feel like, ah, oh, this is really, these guys would just work together. It would be a lot easier for me in this because now I have six chat windows open. Uh, we play online. <laughs> so, so I have six chat windows open and I'm trying to control stuff when the main story also needs to keep trucking. So it is... Uh, interesting uh, to be the DM because sometimes it's great and sometimes it is not. 
you know, that's a thing that I think everyone just kind of has established before the campaign begins. If I go in knowing, okay, well, people aren't going to follow my philosophy, then I won't feel as bad when the inevitable betrayal happens. Um, if going in, I, again, I'm in this mindset that we're all going to work together and it happens, then obviously it's different. Yeah, I, I agree that there, I think there's a social contract written up, you know, not necessarily literally, but uh, figuratively, I guess, between the members of your campaign party. And if you are not expecting the kind of shenanigans that our group sometimes got up to, then I can understand feeling like all of your effort has kind of gone to waste. So I, I definitely agree that it is something worth talking about. And I think both viewpoints are valid. I think it's just a preference of whether or not your group's friendships can handle, you know, a warlock blowing out his own eye to gain the powers of an evil god or something like that. Absolutely. And we should be clear, too. I think uh, with your home group, when you establish that social contract, I think that's great. I think when you're doing something like organized play at an encounters event, uh, you should always try to not be an (laughs) a-hole. Because these are new people you're playing with. um, And that may not be the way they play the game. And it's usually not the way those sort of events are written. You know, pre-written campaigns are usually written with the idea in mind that the party likes each other and is working together towards a common goal. Uh, So, you know, you don't want to necessarily go into your local game store and tell the DM you're going to start backstabbing people because that ain't cool. Yeah, I think when you are going to create, when you are deliberately choosing to instigate intra-party conflict, you're kind of trading on the good graces of the friendships you already have with the people in in your group. And if those don't exist yet, then unless you are going about it in a very over-the-top and kind of farcical way, then you're going to end up hurting feelings, which is just going to be bad for everyone's play experience. Uh, Alex Basso, what are your thoughts on campaign themes and party dynamics? So campaign themes, I, I like having... You know, uh, some sort of evil threat, but I don't like it being too too directed on how to like deal with that threat. Like, I'm just thinking about the Baldur's Gate, uh, you know, mini campaign we did for uh, you know a couple of months ago, where there's a couple different factions and we can you know choose who to work with, and there's a lot of choices. I really really enjoy spending time with the group, like planning what to do, even if sometimes it takes two hours and we get nowhere. It's fun to just talk through. Um, you know, what options we have and what we can do. And when it comes to party dynamic, I'm all right with, you know, uh, you know, people playing their, their shady characters. I feel like I, I have a good idea now of who not to trust when, uh, when, uh, you know, Randy <laughs> Berry, the, uh, the wizard, uh, who's been in jail and doesn't like anyone, you know, I'll keep my eye on him. I, I've, I know enough about you guys now to, to see when a character is going to possibly do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you guys are good at you know re- introducing characters that way. Like Silas, I'm gonna say, yeah, that blew me away. But that's you know that's one out of the six or seven characters we couldn't trust. Sure. Well, and Vegas had planned that from the very beginning. Silas is uh, 
turn, dramatic turn, and we worked that together, and uh, he steered the story, uh, I think while we were playing together, he steered the story for himself in such a direction that in the end, he chose the path of good as opposed to the path of evil, but his character had an internal struggle and was doing a little sabotage and murder of innocence on the side. It was a, it was psychologically neat for me to play too. Uh, I started feeling uh, bad about doing these evil things, uh, and uh, that's why after I guess playing so long with you guys, I eventually couldn't bear to go full blown evil at the end, and did take a turn to the bad and then a turn to the good. Yeah, I think one of the kind of arcs that you don't get to play if you kind of just put a party-wide kibosh on inter-party conflict is the kind of redemption story arc. It It's one thing to, to write in your backstory like, oh, this guy was a bad guy and say things and then have him be a good character throughout the rest of the campaign. I think it's more effective as a storytelling device for a character to take positive action in the wrong direction, whichever way you're going on the alignment scale, and then kind of grow to change that alignment. And I, I feel like if, if you are dead set on always agreeing with the party 100% of the time, that doesn't... The, the opportunity for character growth in that regard doesn't really exist. Right, absolutely. I think you should always be open to growing the character, that's part of the fun. Things can change. A cute little gnome can suddenly blast out his eye because he wants to insert the eye of Vecna into his skull. You know, um, <laughs> an evil invoker can become a good guy when he is influenced by the party members around him and sees the good that they're doing. That is a very cool arc for people to play. It doesn't always need to be that dramatic a shift, but I think uh, it always helps when players are open to exploration of their characters. I don't mind inter-party conflict, but at the end of the day, I want the story to be about the group, not the individual. And I think that's maybe where our philosophies change, is that my character's story isn't as important as the things that the party has achieved. Uh, and I, I definitely can see that point of view. I think a lot of times inter-party conflict for some people, as particular backstabbers and stuff, uh, if that's all they're doing, it does very much become, look at me, look at me, look at me. But I think sometimes when you have characters who have opposed dichotomies, um, there is bound to be friction. And eventually you just have to see where that wins out. I think a lot of people have an idea that they want to work together which is why uh, i think in the end you know at, at the end of the campaigns we referenced vecna was killed the silver flame was restored that sort of thing um but uh but yeah i think i think you're absolutely right that sometimes the focus can become about spotlight stealing and that's never good because you're right it is a team game not an individual game rudy i'm not going to kill you in our current campaign i promise okay yeah Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh boy. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, Timez, Andrew Timez, and Alex Basso do not want to be found. However, 
Rudy Basso and Vegas do want to be fans. So, Rudy, where can people find you? Hey, you can check me out Twitter at Rudy Basso, R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. Or check out my sketch comedy group, Cows Come Home, at CowsComeHomeComedy.com. Thank you. Nice. Check them out. They're very funny. Vegas, how about you? Hey, if you're in Philadelphia on a Friday night, uh, any Friday night, come check out the N Crowd. Our website is phillyncrowd.com. We're Philadelphia's longest-running independent improv comedy troupe. Coming up on our ninth anniversary. Hooray. Those guys are freaking awesome. Check them out if you can. And you can find me on Twitter at James Intercasso. J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. And please check out my new blog, which is all about the 5th edition world I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Andrew, Alex, Rudy, and Vegas. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You can also leave us a comment about the show at the Tomes website. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.